As many of you know, I love the cartoon strip, Calvin and Hobbes, and I probably have every uh, book that's been written on that notorious pair, and um, I like it not just for the humor, but because of its study of human nature. If the only reason you read comic strips is for the humor, I think more times than not, uh, you'll strike out. Uh, a lot of the, the comic strips are not uh, real funny, but I think there's a lot of depth to some of the comic strips uh, that are out there. And um, I think that's true of Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, one of the reasons why he named uh, the, the pair Calvin and Hobbes was because of those two people in history, their view of human depravity. Uh, Hobbes was a non-Christian, and as a philosopher, he had probably the most pessimistic view of human nature. And so uh, the author of Calvin and Hobbes says, I picked that one. And of course, Calvin's uh, notorious. He's well known for uh, teaching the doctrine of total depravity. So this uh, author of, of this comic strip, even though he's not a Christian, uh, he had a, I think, a very uh, insightful view of human nature, and he portrays it on almost every page that he comes to. Nothing, however, comes anywhere close to defining human hearts uh, like the Scripture. Scripture indicates that given the right circumstances, anyone can stoop to doing anything. And if you think you're exempt from being able to sin the way that Antiochus did or some of the other figures did, then you really need to uh, listen to the admonition of Scripture, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. There have been so many people who thought, I'm not tempted in that direction. And they have fallen in exactly the area that they thought that they were strong in. Remember that Christ told his very disciples, who were believers already, without me, you can do nothing. He wasn't saying that to unbelievers. He's saying any one of us can fall apart from his grace. Every one of us needs to be dependent upon the Lord continually because there but for the grace of God, any one of us could go. Now, this passage tells us about a man called Antiochus Epiphanes. And if you read the, uh, the secular history books, they paint him uh, pretty black. Uh, you know the saying, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That saying was based upon the doctrine of total depravity, that if you remove the restraints that keep people from going further and further into uh, depravity, uh, any man will fall, and uh, it points out that, you know, people who are in power, they've got the power to be able to sin many times any way they want. They've got the money, they've got the resources to do what their imaginations uh, want to do. And many of the checks and balances that keep some people and certain kings and others from plummeting into iniquity uh, are removed out of their lives. And so apart from God's restraining grace, they can plummet into any kind of... Of, of a depravity. And so we're going to be doing a little study on total depravity this morning. I do want to pick up one piece of baggage, though, that we dropped on the way, and that's verse 20. In fact, I forgot to put it into your original outlines. If you've been following that, verse 20 is not in there. So you may want to write down Seleucus 4 Philopator. Philopator, P-H-I-L-O-P-A-T-O-R. He's the one that's being talked about in verse 20. He ruled from 187 to 175 B.C. Now his father, remember we had seen last time, was defeated by the Romans, and the Romans imposed these huge war indemnities upon him that they had to pay every year, and uh, then shortly died afterwards. And so his son's picking up the pieces, and he's having to raise all of these taxes. And so it says here, there shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. 
But within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. And if you look at the history books, you'll find he imposed far more taxes upon Israel than he did upon any of the other nations. And I'm not going to get into the details because he's not the focus of my study this morning. Uh, if you want to read the interesting story of how he was supernaturally confronted, how he died a few days later, read it in Second Maccabees. It's a very, very interesting story. But let's pick up with Antiochus Epiphanes in verse 21. It says, and in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty. Antiochus was not supposed to inherit the throne. He was the, the brother to Antiochus the Great, but Antiochus the Great's son was supposed to inherit it. They certainly did not give the throne to uh, Antiochus. In fact, uh, Heliodorus at that point uh, was on the throne. He had, uh, he had taken the throne. Verse 21 shows how Antiochus seized the throne. It was not with war. It says, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue, by intrigue. Antiochus came into the capital um, pretending like he was uh, just watching over the, uh, the son that he was bringing from Rome of uh, the, the former king and uh, uh, professing to have no other intentions than to uh, be going along with the present government that was there. But unbeknownst to most of the people in Syria, he had been doing some groundwork behind the scenes through flattery, through uh, 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 promised bribes and gifts should he get onto the throne, through playing one power off against another. He had gotten the siding, uh, the king of Pergamos, uh, key Syrian figures, and the government of Rome. And so when he comes into Antioch and he says, okay, I'm king, here's the cards I'm putting out on the table, and here's what's going to happen to you if you don't let me be king, uh, Syria recognized they didn't have a whole lot of choice, and so peaceably, through intrigue, he was able to seize the throne. Uh, before I go on to the next verse, I just want to comment briefly on God's evaluation of him right there. Antiochus uh, saw himself as God manifest, and that's what the name Epiphanes means. That was a title he gave to himself. He thought pretty highly of himself. God's evaluation, though, was that he was a vile person. It says there, in his place shall arise a vile person. And I think that is the kind of contrast that goes on in every human heart. We think pretty highly of ourselves, and yet God describes us as vile and full of iniquity. And the greatest need of the day to, to, today is not self-esteem. Uh, even people who think the worst of themselves and are coming into counseling do not quite think bad enough of themselves because they're still thinking, there's got to be something in me that you can pat me on the back about and make me feel good about. They're not seeing their total depravity that makes them look and see Jesus Christ as their only solution. And so we need more Christ-esteem, less self-esteem, but I think we think uh, far too highly of ourselves than, than we ought. Um, you may not always have the, the power to get your desires. You may not have the kind of money to spend that Antiochus did to, uh, to uh, promote your desires, but Scripture indicates every man, woman, and child is vile. Psalm 14, verse 1. Psalm 51, verse 3 says, They are corrupt and their ways are vile. There is no one who does good, no, not one. And so in a very real sense, every human is a little Nero, a little Hitler, a little Antiochus, a little Stalin. 
And you may think, that's going a little bit far, isn't it, Pastor? Uh, surely uh, infants and little children, you know, aren't they innocent until the time of accountability? They don't need a Savior, do they? And yet the Scripture indicates, no, infants, even when they are in the womb, are full of iniquity. Isaiah 1, verse 4, describes children as children given to corruption. Psalm 58, verse 3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They're estranged from God, even in the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. You see, sin clings to us like tar right from the time of conception, and nothing but the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ can remove that from us. When I was at Covenant College with, um, with Kathy, there was a, a series of lectures that a special speaker had brought in on Jonathan Edwards. It was John Gerstner, who's an expert on, on Edwards. He studied him his whole life. And uh, he was relating this one story in one of the lectures of a woman who came up to Jonathan Edwards and had this uh, cute little cuddly baby in her arms and was saying, isn't, isn't he such a sweet angel or something along those lines and an innocent baby. And uh, Jonathan Edwards purportedly say, Madame, that is a little viper, <laughs> a little viper kind of popped her bubble there. And uh, uh, people got kind of a chuckle out of that. And Dr. Krabbendam in the back, you know, he waved his hand. He wanted to be recognized. And Dr. Gershner says, yes, Dr. Krabbendam. And he says, well, it may be that our covenant children are little vipers, but they're little vipers wrapped up in covenantal diapers. <laughs> and he was pointing out that, yes, our children are depraved, but God has claimed our children to himself. Our children are not in the no-man's land, and they need God's grace. And they need salvation every bit as much as Antiochus did, every bit as much as adults do. But the scriptures describe our children as vipers, as vile, as filled with uncleanness. Little Hitlers, little Antiochuses, they are not innocent. The only thing that keeps our children from getting worse and worse and worse is the restraining grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that Stalin had memorized a large portion of the New Testament when he was in Sunday school as a kid? He did. And yet that scripture had not gripped his heart. God's grace had not taken that and transformed him. And we must not ever, ever ignore the salvation of our children and think because of some supposed doctrine of accountability that our children aren't accountable, that they're innocent or something like that, that we don't pray diligently for our children's salvation and present them to the Lord and say, oh Lord, regenerate them because nothing but the regenerating power of God's Spirit and the blood of Christ applied to our children can save them. They are in need of salvation and do not neglect that on behalf of your children. But every human heart not only resembles Antiochus and being vile in general, but expresses the same kinds of crimes that Antiochus expressed against humanity. Now, we're probably not as clever as Antiochus was. He was an extremely gifted, talented man in the expression of his evils. And we're only going to get through half of the passage today and um, just use that part for illustrating depravity. But uh, let me just give you a couple of examples in the Scripture that speak, first of all, of the same kind of rebellion that Antiochus expressed as existing in the hearts of every human. It says in Job, Man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. Isaiah 48, verse 8 in the NIV says, Well do I know how treacherous you are. You were called a rebel from birth called a rebel from birth. Now, if we are rebels against God from birth, 
then you can understand how Antiochus, with all of the years' experience that he had, was quite skilled at rebellion. And there are several examples of rebellion in this chapter, but verse 21 shows one. He seizes the kingdom by intrigue. He was not the rightful heir to the throne. He seized it by overthrowing the authorities that had been put in place already by that country. Uh, later, we're going to see that he, uh, he deposes and later... Uh, murders Onias, the high priest. But there was, there was a sense in which he was taking the throne of authority through his own powers. Every time we sin, we do something far worse. We are seeking to dethrone Almighty God and say, I'm going to sin irrespective of your decrees. I'm going to sin because I have put myself in the place of your throne. That's what every sin is. It is rebellion against Almighty God. Let me give you one description uh, of sin from the Scriptures, and it shows how we vaunt ourselves against God. Though his haughtiness mounts up to the heavens and his head reaches to the clouds, yet he will perish forever like his own refuse. Sin is ultimately rebellion against God, and that treason deserves the death penalty. It's only the grace of God that keeps us from the same kind of judgment that Antiochus deserved. Now, we tend to look at people like Antiochus Epiphanes and Nero, and we shake our heads, you know, and we, we, we maybe pray like uh, the Pharisee in the temple. Lord, I thank you, I'm not like other men. We just don't see ourselves in Antiochus, you know. We'd never be that bad. And yet the Scripture says, no, the roots of that is in every human heart. It is. When God begins to put His Word, the mirror of His Word, up before your face, and you begin to see into the recesses of your heart of how wicked you are, you're going to begin to be like Paul and say, man, I am, of, I am the most wicked of all men. Chief of sinners is what Paul said of himself. You say, how, how could Paul be the chief of sinners? But you see, we, the, more, the closer we get in terms of holiness, to the spotlight of God's holiness, the more sin we see in ourselves. We see far more in ourselves than we'll ever see in other people. And we begin to realize there, but for the grace of God, I would go. We cringe at the thought and we cling to God's grace the tighter. Now, verse 21 also describes another aspect of depravity, intrigue and deceit. I've heard people say that they have never lied in their lives. That itself is a lie, <laughs> because the Scripture says that every man, woman, and child has deceit in their heart, and they either lie with their lips or they lie with their lives. Uh, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, indicates that apart from grace, deceit is a part of the human heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? See, we don't even understand our heart. We can't understand the ways in which we have deceived ourselves. Self-deception is a part of the heart. It says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We don't like to think of ourselves as being like Antiochus, and yet the Scripture indicates we deserve hell every bit as much as Antiochus did. Given the right circumstances, any one of us would plummet to the level that he did. And even babies are deceitful. They're seeking to manipulate their parents so that the whole world will revolve around them. Psalm 58.3 again, it says, They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Now, there are some people who say, No way, my kid doesn't do that. This is the inerrant Word of God. This is God Himself speaking. He says, That's what it happens to infants. I've seen it happen. 
I think most parents, they recognize it in their kids. This kid's, you know, crying. It's the hungry cry, and you pick him up, and he's not hungry. He just wants to be cuddled. Uh, they manipulate the parents right from the start through deception. Next time you think that Calvin and Hobbes is a little bit uh, overkill, you know, painting man a little bit too pessimistically, think, uh-uh, uh-uh. Once we understand the human heart, uh, it is not painting man nearly as badly as man really is. And it's only the restraining grace of God that turns and un keeps an unbeliever from turning into an Antiochus. And it's only the saving grace of God which takes us out of his camp into the camp of those who are believers. And so he needs to get all the glory all the glory in our lives. Verses 22 through 24 shows not only his aggression, but also it shows the veneer that he paints uh, over his life. <clears throat> Verse 22, With the force of a flood they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. Now, Antiochus did start off with a very small uh, number of people who sided with him, and yet he became very strong, very speedily. He swept away all opposition in Syria, in Israel, and in Egypt. Uh, the prince of the covenant that is mentioned there is a reference to Onias, the high priest in Israel. He, he reigned in Israel and um, sided with Egypt. This deposing of the high priest in 175 B.C., and the later assassination in 171 BC marks the beginning of state interference in religious, spiritual affairs. And I'm not going to comment so much on that uh, today. I'll probably pick that up because that becomes the pattern for Rome's persecution of Christians, and it becomes the pattern down through history for other countries as well. They saw how well it worked with Antiochus, and they began to do that. But I want to show that the roots of this sin can be seen, yes, even in the Christian congregation. You don't have to look to a Madeleine Murray O'Hare. You don't have to look to a Nero or a Hitler to see these things going on. Those of you who think, if you lived back in the time of Antiochus, you would never depose Onias the high priest just because he's uh, disagreeing with uh, one of your policies. And yet, the same people who would probably disagree with that many times are opposed to the anointed of the Lord in the pulpit. Uh, many times Christians despise the authority of the elder's office, and even though it's in milder terms, it is the same kind of rebellion against authority that was seen in Antiochus. Why did Paul weep in his epistles? It was because of the backbiting and the hurt that many in his congregations had brought to him the despising of his authority. Why does Hebrews 13, verse 17 have to command, obey those who rule over you? I mean, even the word obey, you know, sends shivers up some people's spines. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. He has to command obedience to the elders because submission is not something natural to the human heart. Rebellion is natural to the human heart. And it starts right at birth. It transfers on into marriage and it's into every authority structure. But Isaiah 48 verse 8 says, You were called a rebel from birth. Now when we begin to see how, our, how depraved our hearts are, it ought to cause our hearts to well up in praise and adoration to God that He would deign to save anybody. 
that he would bother to even mess with our lives. See, God does not owe us salvation. God does not owe us any favors apart from Jesus Christ. And you are not saved because you're better than Antiochus. The only reason any one of us is saved is because God, who knows why, for some reason within himself, out of his sovereign good pleasure, decided to pour out mercy and grace upon us. And so he gets all the glory. Amen? There cannot be anything that we can claim to ourselves. Now, there was more to Antiochus's evil heart, a lot more that we're going to get to today, and probably we won't even continue uh, next time. We're going to be looking at Antiochus from a different perspective, probably from the perspective of persecution. But, you know, the more we grow in our lives, the more and more we are going to recognize the depravity that lives there. Now, one Puritan... Uh, writer had indicated that the more he had grown in the Lord and the closer he grew to the Lord, the more sinful he seemed to become. And what he was meaning by that is that the closer to God's spotlight, the more of sin he recognized there. And so if we do not recognize the sinfulness and the depravity of our hearts, it just shows us really how far from the spotlight of God's holiness we are. Because every heart is depraved. Now, there's been a debate as to which league is being referred to there in verse 23 that, uh, that he breaks, um, <clears throat> because there were many alliances and many covenants that uh, he made with no thought, right from the beginning, no thought of keeping them. He broke covenant with people in Syria, uh, in Israel, and in Egypt. And I'm not sure that we have to decide whether this particular verse is referring to the league that he broke in Israel or the one he broke in Egypt, because it really describes the pattern of his life. But I take it as the first league, the one in Israel that he broke, that began to set the pattern for later actions. But you know, Scripture portrays every man, woman, and child as being a covenant breaker. We are covenant breakers. In Adam, who was our federal head, God can justly judge us as being covenant breakers with him. But really, would we have done any different if we had to make the choice? Let, let's just examine our lives for covenant breaking. When was the last time that you went back on your word? You said you were going to do something and you never followed through. Uh, when was the last time that you were late to a meeting that you said you were going to be going to? Or when was the last time you let your kids down, you made some promise to your kids that you were going to take them out on some outing or you were going to do this and that and you did not follow through on that? When was the last time that you bounced a check? Those are all forms of covenant breaking. Yes, they may be more mild than what Antiochus did, but at root, it is the same kind of covenant breaking that brings down God's wrath upon man. None of us is exempt. All of us are covenant breakers, according to Romans 1, uh, verse 31. It's the Greek word there to, uh, to uh, make a covenant void. Uh, there is historical evidence that what he did... Uh, in verse 24, was done by Antiochus in both Israel as well as in Egypt. And various people have taken different sides. Some say this was what he did in Israel, and others say it's what he did in Egypt. I take the former view. Uh, but the point is, it's a general description of the way he worked. Verse 24 says, He shall enter peaceably even into the richest places of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. 
Antiochus, while being extremely selfish, gave every appearance of being extremely generous. And that's not a contradiction, uh, because his motives in handing out all of this wealth was precisely to get people into a position where he could take it right back again. He could destroy them. Uh, see, initially, uh, he gave out enormous amounts of wealth to people to curry their favor far more, according to the secular history books, than any of his forefathers had ever done. Enormous amounts of money. And through the gifts that he gave, uh, through the generosity, the flattery, the charm, the graciousness, he appeared to be pretty nice to some of these people. But this verse says the reason that he was doing that was to destroy and to take those very strongholds that he was being nice to. And you know, that hypocrisy is also something that is common to the human heart. Uh, we may not be as good at it as Antiochus, but is it not true that we tend to be very gracious and generous and nice up front with people that we don't like? And after they've left, we maybe cut them apart. Why do we feel the need to be gracious to them, to put on that facade before their face? Because it's to our advantage. It'll benefit us to do it. And so our generosity has selfish motives. You can see that it is not a contradiction at all. Um, uh, there are uh, some who can see sin in others. They can't see any sin in their own lives. When was the last time that you've been convicted of sin? We tend to think a whole lot more highly of ourselves than when we do of other people. And it's because of the spiritual makeup that we plaster all over our being so that people can't see all of the warts and all of the problems that God's light uh, would uh, bring, uh, bring out. And the tendency is to minimize our own iniquity and it's to maximize other people's iniquity. Now examine your own hearts. Those of you who have been in car accidents, what was the first impulse of your heart when you got into that accident? Was it not to, how do I explain how I really was not at fault here, or at least to minimize my fault and to paint the other person as really being maximally at fault? I mean, that is the natural impart of our hearts unless God's grace is working in us and taking us in the other direction. Some of the traffic reports that police departments have put out are just hilarious. The kinds of stories that people give as to how this accident happened, which absolutely could not be true because they're wanting to paint themselves in as good a light as possible. We like to cover our transgressions, and one of the ways that we do it, if we're evil in a given area, we try to cover that over by being generous or by being good in another area. That was one of the things that Antiochus did. But, you know, when we cover our transgressions, the Scripture says we will not prosper. That was true of Antiochus. It'll be true in your life as well. It says here that he brings that facade to an end at one point in Antiochus's life. There came a time, well, all the pagans recognized exactly where Antiochus came from. They were no longer fooled. Um, he called himself, he gave his title Epiphanes, which means God manifest. The pagans began to call him, instead of Epiphanes, Epimenes. It's a similar sounding word, but it means madman. And uh, that is what the nature of all sin is. It is madness, it is folly, the scripture says, to sin. Why do we do it? Uh, you know, people... Uh, who, um, uh, uh, for example, commit adultery. Many times they are throwing away a wonderful spouse, a wonderful family, destroying it all for something that is going to be a passing, a passing fancy. It is madness. It is folly. Scripture says, be sure your sins will find you out, and yet every time we sin in any sin, we think, I'm not going to be found out. I'm going to be able to get away with this. 
It is irrational at root for any sin. And so we have the same problems in our own lives, madness. Verses 25 through 28 describe Antiochus's first campaign against Egypt. It says, he shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. Now, let me stop there for a moment because I think this is helpful to distinguish total depravity from utter depravity. Total depravity does not mean that a person is as but total depravity, you could get worse, but it means the totality of your being is affected by sin and is drawn into sin. It means your mind, your emotions, your will, your thoughts, your words, your motives, your actions, they're all directed by sin. So it doesn't mean you can't get worse or it doesn't mean you don't do any good things. Unbelievers can do righteous things. The only thing Scripture says is all of our righteousnesses, we have righteousnesses as sinners, but all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Anyway, it goes on and says, And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against, uh, uh, against him. And the way that they did that, um, they, the courtiers, when he was fighting against Antiochus, who, by the way, was his uncle, when he was fighting against Antiochus, his courtiers gave him bad advice because they had plans all along to replace him with his brother and to put uh, his brother, Ptolemy Fiscon, on the, on, the, on the throne. And so verse 26 says, Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies, that would be his courtiers, the king's courtiers, shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away and many shall fall down slain. Not only was there the slaughter mention, uh, but the replacing of, of him with his brother. And at this point, when he flees from the Egyptians, Antiochus, his uncle, who had been fighting against him, takes him in and he pretends to be uh, looking out for his interests and professes friendship and makes a big deal about the blood ties that they have together. And he says, I want to put you back on the throne. That's rightfully yours. And uh, they work together some kind of a treaty. But Philometer, the one who was on the throne and now is off the throne, he does the same thing with his uncle. He wants to use his uncle just like his uncle wants to use him. Antiochus wanted the throne for himself, and he figured he could use Philometer to that end. So they both make an agreement to conquer Egypt together and to put um, uh, Ptolemy Philometer back on the throne. And it says in verse 27, Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table. You know, it's just remarkable. When you re realize how many years... I mean, verse 20 was already 362 years. It was prophesied before the events took place there. And some of these events, the details that God gave just highlights the inspiration, the authority of Scripture. Anyway, it says their plan did not succeed, and that's what we find in the history books. They were not able to conquer Egypt in their joint campaign. Uh, instead, uh, he was able to get all the way to Memphis, and so uh, Antiochus crowned him as king in Memphis over part of Egypt, and his brother, um, uh, Ptolemy Fiscon, uh, ruled from Alexandria. And their goal would not be accomplished until God's perfect timing. So the last phrase there says, for the end will still be at the appointed time, in God's timing. We can never push things beyond that. Now, I want to briefly 
comment on how these relatives used each other with flattery and pretense, but never had a love for each other. We rightly think that's despicable that an uncle would treat his nephew like that, like Antiochus did, and yet we find the same kinds of problems even in our Christian conduct, many times in Christian circles. Let me just give an example that you could perhaps relate to. Do you manipulate your children into obedience or do you instruct them in righteousness? It's a whole lot easier to manipulate the children through bribes or through one thing or another, or if you're trying to get your kid to uh, take medicine that tastes horrible or broccoli or something else they don't like, and maybe you don't like, you know, you put it into your mouth, pretend like you're putting it into your mouth and say, mmm, yummy, you try it now, you know, and you're trying to get this kid uh, to be manipulated into eating something you wouldn't touch, okay? Um, in a sense, it is a whole lot easier to manipulate our kids than it is to instruct them in righteousness. And we need to avoid things that would lead to the kind of manifestations of depravity that Antiochus had. I mean, it's so natural to our human hearts anyway, and if you reinforce that with your own behavior, your children are going to turn out the worse for it. And there are many other applications that we could use of how Christians use other Christians to their own ends, really have no love for them. These are sins that we need to repent of and abandon. Now, I'm going to end there. I'm not going to finish off uh, the last verse. I think we'll probably pick up um, next time and, and have a, a slightly different focus as we look at, as, at Antiochus. But I want to end with the admonition that we should never justify the sins that we see in a Calvin or a Hobbes and say, oh, it's just natural, you know. They'll outgrow it or something like that. No, they're serious. Jesus Christ died because those sins deserved the death penalty. Jesus Christ was willing to die on our behalf because he hated those very sins that we seek to be clinging to. Matthew 1.21 gives the purpose of his death to, quote, save his people from their sins. And if you are not being saved from your sins, you are not saved, period. If you are not growing in holiness, you have no life in you. His whole purpose was to not just save us from hell, but to save us from our sins. And that's one of the evidences that we have of the life of God within us. There are not three classes of people. Uh, some people say that there's two kinds of Christians. There's, there's um, spiritual Christians who've got it made, and there's carnal Christians, and that's okay. And then there's unbelievers. No, there's two classes. You're either the damned or you're the saved. And if you're the saved, you are growing in holiness. you got some sin in your life, but you're going to be growing in holiness. Those are the only two categories that the Scriptures put forward. But you know, one of the remarkable things that the Scripture tells us is that when we say to Christ, I want you to take off my filthy rags, as embarrassing as it is, Lord, I want you to take off my filthy rags and I want to receive the righteousness of Christ, His righteous clothing over me. Jesus says at the point of our conversion, when we repent of our sins and by faith receive Christ's salvation, we become perfect legally. 
No longer are we seen as sinful. And God can love us with the same intense love He loves the Son because we're as perfect as the Son. We're united with the Son. And not only does He legally give us His righteousness, but He imparts His righteousness in us experientially where we're growing day by day, being conformed to the image of Christ. That means we're going to begin looking more and more like Jesus Christ and less and less like Antiochus Epiphanes. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That's what he has promised to do. He hates sin enough that he's going to do something about it in our lives. In uh, the, one of the Calvin strips uh, that are in your discussion questions downstairs, uh, Calvin asks this question as he surveys all the damage done in the living room. He says, do you think God lets us plea bargain? And the scriptural answer is no. There can be no plea bargain. The only thing that can get us into heaven is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. He says, be ye perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. I think that our perfection in Christ that's received by faith, we can't do anything to receive it other than take it, is something that is given as a gift. And our holiness, our sanctification is something that we work at, but it too is imparted by the Lord Jesus Christ. But Hebrews tells us our part in Hebrews 12, 14. It says, pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Our God is a holy God who hates sin with an intense hatred and he wants us growing in holiness. So he says, pursue holiness without which no one will will see the Lord. May each one of us put off the old man and put on the new man. Our, our, our righteousness in Christ, our, 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 our new identity with Christ, growing into the image of our Savior. Amen.